Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10, and we'll be studying verses 4 through 10. We'll get a running start in verses 1 through 3, which was part of our passage from last week. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, or crave the pure milk of the word, some of your versions say, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now that passage is a quotation from Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now that's from Psalm 18. I'm sorry, Psalm 118, verse 22. And then he goes further and he says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of of offense. And there he quotes Isaiah chapter 8. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's a, really a glorious passage. I would call it a Mount Everest passage in the book of 1 Peter. I mean, it's just a reflection on Jesus Christ and how special He is. I want us to get a running start from verses 1 to 3 this morning because it's very important as we understand the transition from verse 3 to verse 4. And so last week, what we said was that the Word of God is powerful, it is pure, it is permanent. And we talked about that in detail. And we said because of the Word of God being what it is, what should be our response? And Peter gave us two commands. One was at the end of chapter 1 and one was at the beginning of chapter 2. Does anybody remember what uh, either of the two commands that, that Peter gave to us? Love one another. And long for the word. Love one another and long for the word. Those were the two commands based on the word of God. Now, as, uh, as I was thinking about that after the sermon and then through the week, I had to ask myself a question. Ryan, how are you doing with that? And so I want to ask you that question this morning. H how are you doing in loving one another and craving the pure milk of the word? I mean, how did it go for you this week? If you and I were to sit down at lunch this afternoon across the table from one another, have a one-to-one -one conversation, and you ask me, Ryan, 
how did you do loving one another? How did you do craving the Word of God? And I ask you that same question. Well, what's the response? I'm going to tell you. I, I, uh, I could respond this way. I, I could say, you know, I, I, I don't think I slandered anyone. I don't think I had malice against um, other people the way that Peter says we shouldn't. But I was critical to some people. And I was critical about some people. And I had to repent of that. And I have to learn a little bit better how to communicate more lovingly, as Peter would say, than, than what I normally do. And, and, and I would also have to say that, that I wasn't as hospitable to others as I should have been. Thursday night, you know, we have our gathering, we have numerous visitors, and I think I could have loved people a lot better Thursday night than I actually did love them. I think I could, could have initiated conversation with them and helped them. Now, it, it, you know, it might have been a little um, odd to have a conversation with Buzz Lightyear. It might have been a, a, a more... Uh, a difficult thing, but nevertheless, I thought to myself, the next time we have an event with significant hospitality, I need to have a more spirit of hospitality. But see, what we have to do, guys, is we have to understand that we've got to come to the Word of God, we've got to look in the mirror, and we've got to say, how am I doing? And, and, and if I'm not doing well, I need to repent, and I need to change, I need to improve in my sanctification, I need to improve in my way. I, I put in my notes, if we're going to mature in the faith, if we're going to honor God and be a blessing to people, we've got to take an inventory of ourselves and repent of our sins. If I um, always do the, the things that I've, uh, in the way that I've always done them, I'm going to get the results that I've always gotten. And so I need to keep that in mind when it comes to uh, loving one another and craving the, the pure milk of the Word. We need to take the Scriptures seriously. Now, look down at verse, uh, verse 3, because he says, um, desire the pure milk of the Word if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. And then the very first thing he says in verse 4 is coming to Him. Coming to Him. So in other words, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, then you're going to come to Him. Right? You see the logic there. All right? And so I want to tell you, I want to give you this principle, and I want you to, if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. If you crave Him, you will come to Him. If you crave Him, you will come come to him and that is to jesus if you desire to know jesus and to be like jesus and, it, and then you will want to approach jesus you'll come to him in prayer you'll come to him in bible study you'll come to him in meditation you'll come to him in corporate worship you'll come to him in discipleship opportunities but if you're really craving him and wanting to know him then you'll then you'll definitely come to him now god has hardwired the human human dna in such a way listen to me that that what you want the most, you will pursue the hardest. What you want the most, you will pursue the hardest. I thought of a myriad of examples of this, but uh, one that came to my mind was a teammate that I had in college. I uh, played uh, college baseball, and our freshman year, um, he, he, uh, he had major league baseball player credentials on the defensive side, but on the offensive side, he could not hit his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, he just was not a good hitter. But what did he do? He wanted to become a great hitter. He wanted to become a Major League Baseball player. He wanted to improve, and he craved it. I mean, he just longed for it probably more than anybody on our team, and so he came to practice early and did drills. He worked hard during practice. He stayed afterwards and hid in the batting cages and, and uh, did various exercises and went to the weight room and got stronger and worked on his agility and the quickness of his hands. And he continued to do this not just through that season, but through the next three seasons. And by the time he was a senior in college, he hit about 400. He had about 10 home runs. 
He ended up playing for his national uh, team in, in Greece and in England in the World Games. And, and, and he became what he wanted to become. And the reason why is because he craved it. He desired it. He longed after it. He wanted it more than he wanted anything else. Now listen, whatever you want the most, all right, you will pursue the hardest. And the question here for us is, do we want Jesus the most? Is that what we crave the most? If it is, then we're going to come to him. We're going to long for him. Now, now, I think that one issue that is possible in some of our lives here is that we don't crave him. Like you hear this idea about desiring God and wanting God and longing after God, and you read Psalm 84 and, and you think, oh, you know, how the psalmist longed to be in the dwelling place of God, and he would rather be a doorkeeper in, in the house of his God than dwell in the tents of the Almighty. And you're like, I just don't resonate with that. I don't, I don't feel that in my heart. I don't, I don't experience that longing, that craving, and that desire. Well, you got one of two problems. Okay, you got one of two issues here this morning. The first issue would be that. The reason you don't crave God and you, the reason you don't want Him is because you don't know Him. It's because you're, you're actually not a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, if your life hasn't been transferred over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of His beloved Son, then you're never going to want Him. And so what you need to do is call on the name of the Lord today and say, God, save me. Transfer me from darkness into light. Transfer me from the kingdom of, of, of hell to the kingdom of heaven. Do that in me. And I will tell you, God will do it. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the second reason you may not crave God, the, the, the second reason is you may be a Christian, but you're just not wanting Him. It's because you're not beholding Him. You know, uh, Phil preached a couple of weeks ago, and one of the key things that he said in that sermon was, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. And let me tell you, that's, Peter's premise here when he says love one another and he says crave the pure milk of the word is that you're beholding the word you're beholding him and, and you've experienced his grace every person who has ever truly tasted the grace of God should crave the word of God because in the word of God you know who you find the son of God get that you got that, Mike? Every person who has tasted the grace of God, verse 3, should crave the Word of God, verse 2. And the reason you do that is because in the Word of God you find the Son of God. And so, what I want to do this morning, in, in, um, in hopefully a clear, simple way, is give you three foundational and formational truths about Jesus Christ. Three foundational and formational truths about Jesus Christ. Now, I say foundational because every person needs to know these truths and to be grounded on these truths. Like, if you're not a Christian, like, if you don't know Jesus today, and, and when you hear the name of Jesus, just a, a delightful thought doesn't come to your mind. Somebody who might be distant, maybe somebody you know who is a holy person comes to your mind, but you're not really somebody close, then you really need to know this because you can be saved today by these truths. But they're also formational. They're formational. What it does is it'll, it'll take your life with Jesus and your relationship with Him and form you more into His image, make you become more delighted in Him, more, more loving in Him, and actually a reflection more of His, of his grace and His glory. All right, so three truths about Jesus that'll help you crave Him and come to Him. The first truth about Jesus is this, is that Jesus is the living stone. He is the, the living stone. We see that in verses 4 through 6. 
Now, the first thing that we need to do is wrap our minds around the concept of Jesus as a living stone. I mean, we don't, um, we don't really hear that phrase. We don't think of, of uh, those two words going together, right? I mean, what, what, do, what do we get taught in science? Uh, are stones living? Carson, are stones living normally? No, they're normally lifeless, inanimate objects, right? And yet Peter says that Jesus is a living stone. So we have to, well, what, what is he going after here? What, what is his point in, in making this, this picture, drawing this picture, this uh, metaphor? Well, I just want to give you some clear statements that will help you understand what it means that Jesus is the living stone. All right? First of all, he's living, not dead. He's living, not dead. The reason that, that, uh, that he makes this point is that, first of all, that Jesus is a human being. All right? Uh, we have uh, one mediator between God and man. Who? The man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus is a man, and he's living. And the reason he uses this word living is because he once died. He was put to death. He was put to death by sinful men, but he was also um, um, put to death by a holy God because you and I are sinners, and sinners deserve death. And so God put him to death instead of putting us to death. He caused him to experience condemnation rather than us experience condemnation. But there are so many people who say, oh, he didn't raise from the dead. He's still dead. He's in a tomb somewhere. His bones are rotten. And, and, and Peter's saying, no, he is alive. And so he is a living stone. On the third day, he rose up from the grave. And in doing that, he defeated hell. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. And he won victory for you and I. So that now we can say just as he is alive, we have been made alive. And just as he lives forever, we also live forever if you've trusted in him. So he's living, not dead. But he's also, he's strong, not weak. He's strong, not weak. He's a living stone. You know, just making simple observations this week, notice that he doesn't use an illustration that says he's sand. He doesn't say that he's dirt. He doesn't say that he's a sponge. He's a rock, right? He is a rock. Jesus actually used the same kind of ter terminology in the Sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount at the very end. But if you think about it in these terms, y'all, think about old, old, old structures, whether it be fences or houses or castles. Think about uh, Europe. I mean, th there are castles and homes and fences made of stone that are over 1,000 years old. I mean, they are strong. They are solid. I've actually wanted to go to Europe one day, and maybe we'll get to take that trip one day and, and walk through some of these castles and walk, and walk even to some of these cathedrals and churches that, that are not only beautiful but are firm and are likely going to be here until Jesus returns. Why? Because rocks are strong. They are solid. They're not going anywhere. And so Peter uses this term to describe Jesus because Jesus is strong, he is solid, he is fixed, he is firm, and he's someone that we can count our entire lives on and, our, and the eternal nature of our souls too. The third aspect of this observation we want to make from the text is that Jesus was sovereignly selected. He was sovereignly selected, not, not randomly chosen out of a hat to be the cornerstone, the living stone. Peter actually quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. And in that passage, um, the Lord actually says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. I do it, the Lord says. 
I'm the one who's laying this stone. I'm the one who's setting it. I'm the one who's building this spiritual house. And, and what I want you to know today, especially uh, for those of you who have come in today and you're not exactly sure about this gospel, you're not sure you want to give your life to it, I want to tell you that God himself has sovereignly, providentially, powerfully selected Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to be the chief cornerstone upon which all of life is to be built and based and lived upon. All right, this is a controversial message. All right, God is not a relativist. He is not a pluralist. He has said there's one way in which you can be saved, and that way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so God sovereignly selected him to be the Savior, the solid rock uh, of our faith. And then another observation we make is that um, he is united with all Christians. He's united with all Christians, not divided. In this picture, what you actually see is that God is building a spiritual house. If you even want to call it a temple, you can call it a temple. All right, And he, and he calls... Christ, uh, Peter calls him the living stone. But what's interesting is the picture is not that Jesus is kind of outside the house, kind of set up as this big rock, and, and almost like it's a mural or a statue or something. Like everybody goes and touches the rock. Oh, see the rock. And now here we are as living stones, but let's go kind of form into the, the spiritual house that we're making. It's not, there's not two separate things. What he's actually doing, he's saying is that Jesus is part of this spiritual house. We're going to find out in a minute that he's the chief cornerstone of that house. But he's been united with us, y'all. Jesus is with us. He is in us. He belongs to us. We belong to him. We are in him. He is in us by his spirit. The spirit of Christ has actually been poured out into our hearts so that we know him and we love him and we belong to him. And so he's united with us and we're united with him. Now, I do want to give you one little kind of an aside principle that we definitely learn. Uh, in this passage is that in coming to Christ you come to community in coming to Christ you come to community Peter would would have no knowledge of what it meant for a stone a living stone that is basing its life and its entire meaning on the chief cornerstone the chief living stone and say you know what I want to do my spiritual house by myself I want to do my uh, worship by myself. C can you imagine what that would be like? One stone just saying, hey, I want to be my own spiritual house. Well, if that were the case, you just have this one stone just laying out here. And it would really not have meaning. It would not have worth. It would not have function. But when the stone is actually brought in and a mason is actually take the mortar and really just graft it into the spiritual house that's being built, that's where functionality happens. And I'm just telling you this, guys. Spiritual life happens in the spiritual house that God is building, not apart from it. That's why we make church. That's why we make Christian community so important. So he's, a, he's united with all Christians. He's also a model for all Christians. As we look to the living stone, Peter then says, you also are living stones being built up. So just as he is, so are you. He's a model for us. As we look unto him, we can see the way that we are to be. I know when I was a kid and only to be a teenager, I tried to model all the various athletes that I saw on, on television. I, I, tried to, uh, I tried to shoot just like Larry Bird. 
you know, and I'd try to get my head, my hands way up over my head and, and uh, kind of shoot kind of odd the way he did. Or when I was uh, playing baseball, I'd try to hit just like Dale Murphy with his kind of, uh, kind of wristy swing. Or um, if it was football, I'd try to throw like Joe Montana, even though he made it look so simple and I didn't know how to do it. Uh, I could go on and on. I tried to be, I tried to mirror all these various athletes because I knew that in mirroring them, they had good form, therefore they excelled, therefore, the, therefore they succeeded in their sport. Well, listen, in the same way, we are to mirror the living stone, Jesus Christ, and we are to be like him. We are to key off of him, so it is. So that when we read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and we see how he lived, and we see how he responded to people and how he loved people. You know what? If I'd have been more in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seeing how he loved strangers, then I think I would have loved strangers on Thursday night and on Saturday afternoon better than I possibly uh, did. Okay, So we want to um, have him as our model and key off of him. And then he is critical to the Christian life. He is critical. And there, I use this word critical to, to indicate uh, this word cornerstone here. And if you just look back down at the, the text... Verse 6 says, it's also contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. Now, I had, uh, I had Ron help me with some research on the cornerstone, uh, and he found the same things that I'm finding. And I know that we've probably, most of us, have heard messages about Jesus as the cornerstone. I was trying to find something that maybe we haven't studied before, maybe we don't know about couldn't find it this time but what we can say is this is that in building a house whether it be the temple of god in jerusalem or whether it be a house anywhere else in first century and you're building it by stones you had to get the perfect stone it had to be just the right size had to be just the right the width the right depth it, it, it had to have everything that was perfect because in building a house everything keyed off the cornerstone Everything, whether it be that which was being built vertically or that which was being built horizontally, it all depended on that cornerstone starting in the corner of the structure. And so when Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone, he's saying he is the most critical aspect of your life. He is the most critical aspect of Jesus king, of God's kingdom, and therefore um, he, he is um, most significant. Now, finally, under this section, we can say that he brings honor to the Christian life. All right, look, look at the end of, verse, uh, end of verse 6. He says, He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Let me tell you what's going on here. We've talked about this. But these folks that Peter is writing to in Asia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and all over kind of the northern and northwest part of the Roman Empire, they have been sent out from Rome they have been exiled to Rome. They are not choice citizens of Rome. They are not uh, chosen by the emperor to do something special. They've been kicked out. All right? They feel disenfranchised. They, they feel like they don't have a place. All right? Jerusalem is their place of worship. They don't live there. Rome was their capital city. They did live there, and then they got booted out there. They don't feel good about themselves. They've been rejected. They've been dishonored. They've been booted out. They don't have a place. And that's the way that they're feeling. And what Peter is actually coming to them and saying is, listen, listen, you're not dishonorable. You're not disenfranchised in the eyes of God. 
just as Jesus was disenfranchised, just as Jesus was dishonored, just as Jesus was rejected, so are you. But what you need to know is that while there may be shame in the Roman Empire on you right now, there is no shame in the kingdom of God on you right now. Because just as the people rejected Jesus, God honored him. Just as the people are rejecting you, God is honoring you. Now the question is, would you rather have more honor with God or more honor with, you, with, um, with the world? That's really the question. If you're chasing after honor with the world, then go have at it. But then you're going to have the rejection of God. But if you experience the rejection of men and the rejection of the world because of your attachment to Jesus Christ, there is significant honor there. And that is the nature of what it means to um, have Christ as your living stone and then um, as your cornerstone. Now, the second truth here, it is a hard truth. He is the stumbling stone. He is the stumbling stone. Let's read 7 and 8 again. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. All right, so as I said, Peter actually quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah 8, verse 14 right here. What I want you to understand is that there are two building projects going on in this passage. Two building projects. You ever had two projects going on at one time? All right, I know it's a difficult thing to do. The, thing, the, the interesting thing about this, though, is um, there's two different builders. All right, building project number one, God is the builder. All right, and he's building a spiritual house. Building project number two, men are the builders, and they're building a house. And let me just, let me just lay it out to you the way that, that Peter's actually, I, I feel like Peter's um, picturing it here. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the perfect stone. He is strong. He is attractive. He is perfect. He, he is excellent. He, he, he is the, the kind of stone that you anybody uh, should um, use as their cornerstone. But what he's saying is these builders are starting to build this house, and they come upon Jesus, the, this, this stone, and they look at him, and they measure him up, and, and, and they don't like what they see. They don't like what he's like. They don't like his character. They don't like his identity. They don't like his claim. They don't like his work. They don't like the fact that he's going to get glory. And so um, what they do is just chunk him out. And they chunk him out with the, uh, the pile of debris uh, of all the other maybe rocks that they're not going to use. All right? And, and they say, we're, we're going to find another cornerstone upon which to build our house. And a lot of times what they build their house on is glory, self-glory self-esteem, um, popularity, riches, um, religion that makes them look good rather than God look good, and all kinds of other uh, cornerstones to be built on. But this is the thing that Peter is saying. He's saying you can't just throw the cornerstone out onto the rubble and think that that's all that there is. Let me tell you, if you ever come across Jesus Christ, that encounter is going to affect you. Whether you believe him, and are saved or whether you disbelieve him and are damned because this is the thing the picture is this is that these builders they leave their project site and as they're leaving for the day 
they actually stumble over the cornerstone in which they chunked out. They stumble and fall, all right? They rejected him, but now they're falling over him. And, and the idea here is that they're actually condemned. They're falling because they rejected the one that they should have accepted and used as the cornerstone of their building. And so he, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, I, I have asked the question, um, who rejected the chief cornerstone in the scriptures? And who rejects the chief cornerstone today? I, I thought of kind of four headings. The rich, the rich rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. The religious rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. The rulers rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. The philosophers rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. You guys think with me for a moment. Uh, there was a, a, rich, a rich guy who actually came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You guys remember that? And Jesus said, oh, well, you, you know, you just, you need to, uh, you need to not commit adultery and you need to not kill and steal and you need to honor your parents. And he said, oh, I've, I've done all that. And he said, well, then go and sell all that you own and give it to the poor and then come follow after me. And what happened to that man? He walked away. He was sad because he did not see Jesus worthy enough to give up his riches for. Now, we see the religious rejecting the cornerstone all over the place in the New Testament. But I, I was reading, it was a, the parable that actually that I taught over at Parables in the Park the first Sunday regarding the vineyard. You guys remember there was this vineyard owner? And, and, and this vineyard owner, you know, um, basically leased out his vineyard to these people to work it. And then after a long period of time, he was going to go get some uh, get some of, of uh, the vine, the fruit of the vine. And so he sent one of his servants, and they beat his servant up. And then they, he sent one of his other servants, and, and they stoned him. And then he sent another one of his sermon, servants, and they killed him. And then he said, you know what, I'll send my son, all right? And so when he sent his son, they said, oh, he's the heir. If we kill him, then we'll actually get all that should belong to him. And so what did they do? They dragged him out and killed him as well. And Jesus actually uses the same text that Peter uses and says the cornerstone has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense there. He said, because you are religious, you are not worshipful, you are looking to exalt yourselves rather than exalt the eternal Son of God who has come to pay, purchase your souls. And, of course, the, the rulers um, rejected Jesus. I was uh, reading in Matthew chapter 27 and chapter... 28 where Pilate he, he is warned by his wife that Jesus is a righteous man he then uh, has a conversation with Jesus and sees that Jesus is a righteous man and so he goes to the to the to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish populace and says oh basically this man is a righteous man I don't let's let's don't do anything with him what about Barabbas and they said no crucify Jesus and so the text actually says that after he had scourged him he then crucified him. So here is a person who recognizes the holiness and righteousness and purity of Jesus, but is unwilling to bow his knee to Jesus and worship him. And so Jesus becomes a stumbling block and a rock of offense even to this man. And then 
the philosophers, I thought of about Acts chapter 17, where Paul is preaching the gospel in the city of Athens, and uh, these, uh, the Areopagus, you know, the Areopagites, who are these supposedly these smart, smart, smart guys, they bring um, Paul in to preach the gospel to them, and he does, and he just lays out the gospel, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He talks about that, and he says, look, this, you know, this man has risen from the dead. And they laughed at him, they scorned at him, they scoffed at him. All right, so, uh, uh, the, the text uh, actually says that they heard of the resurrection of dead and some mocked at him. Now, guys, if you think about our current day, and we won't, use every, we won't just talk about details, but if you think about the rich, you, you think about the religious, you think about our rulers, right, you think about our philosophers and our smart people in the world, of those four groups of people, Hardly any of their, the majority of them actually worship Jesus Christ. They mock him, they hate him, they belittle him, and this is why he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And I just want to tell you this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. He is either your cornerstone or he is your stumbling stone. He is either... Um, what you build on and what you key off of, or he is either what you fall over and are essentially damned by. Those who experience condemnation, all right, where the text actually, um, the text actually says at the end of verse 8, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Essentially, Peter is saying those who reject Jesus are appointed to stumble and fall. Because just as Jesus was appointed as the chief cornerstone, just as Jesus was appointed as the Savior of all men, if you are going to disbelieve him, if you are going to just throw him out into the trash just like all other rubble, then you are appointed also to pay the penalty for that sin of disbelief. And so... This is what I want to do right now, is I want to invite every one of you to come to Jesus. I don't want you to make Jesus a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. All right, Th that would be foolish. That, that would be a terrible error. And I know that some people who have yet to come to Jesus, who have yet to, to receive salvation, they say, you know what, I'm not ready for that yet. Well, I want to tell you this. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day. Paul said in Acts chapter 17, now is the day of salvation. Now is. Today. This very day. And so when, when we're worshiping in song in a few minutes, when, when we're just praising God, if you can't praise God because you don't know Him, if you've never been delivered from your sins, if you've never been rescued from, from, from your depravity, from the way that you think, the way that you feel, the, the way that you're struggling, then I want to ask you to just come up front I'll be standing up singing songs. Just come talk to me. And you can come to know Jesus Christ right now, this very moment. And I, I encourage you to take this moment seriously in coming to Christ because you never know when you're going to die. When you're going to die. And today is God's day. Tomorrow is the devil's. Now the third truth that I want to give to you, which is really the summary and the climax and the pinnacle of the passage, is that he transforms everything when you see him for who he is. He transforms everything when you see him for who he is. 
He transforms your identity. He transforms your identity. Look at, look at verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now what you got to know, you note takers, you can write this down. He's actually utilized in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21, and he's ultimately going to use Hosea 2, verse 25. So Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, and Hosea chapter 2. Now I'm just going to tell you guys, this is really encouraging. What I've come to find out is that Peter has actually been meditating on Old Testament Scripture. He actually launches into this whole section because he's been reading Psalm chapter 33. And as he's been uh, learning from Psalm chapter 33, it spurs him on to write this whole passage. But then he uses the law, then a major prophet, and then a minor prophet to talk about what now our identity is in Jesus Christ. It tells me how important it is for you and I to be in the Word of God to absorbing the scriptures so that we can revel in the glory and grace and wonder and love of God just as Peter was, okay? But let's look at this. Let's look at the fact that he transforms our identity, all right? Number one, we're a chosen race, some of your versions say. We're a chosen generation. We are not a random, disenfranchised, ragtag group of people that don't mean anything, we are a redeemed people of God. We are a redeemed race of God. As he's actually quoting um, uh, Isaiah chapter 43, he, he's, he's saying, look, look, you, you, you need to understand this. You need to understand that just as God was calling Israel out from exile to make them something that was glorious and beautiful and beholding to him in a special way, that's the way that you are. All right, You are a chosen generation. God has chosen you. And second of all, you're a royal priesthood. Now, that phrase comes from Exodus 19. And if you guys remember, we studied Exodus 19 about this very month last, last fall. And, and, and what happened is Israel had been taken out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh and delivered out of that through the crossing of the Red Sea. And now they're approaching Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai. God has a conversation with him. And he says, Moses, this is what I want you to know. I have delivered your people out of slavery. I have delivered your people out of misery. I have delivered those people out of drudgery. And now I'm making them a royal priesthood. They are an honorable people. They're no longer slaves, they're priests. They're no longer under dominion of a, of a taskmaster named Pharaoh. They are under a, a, the high king of the entire universe, God Almighty. You let them know who they are and who they represent. And what, what Peter's saying is that now under the new covenant, you're also a royal priesthood. And in Christ, you are priests unto God and you are worshipers of him. Then he calls them a holy nation. And say, look, just as Israel was free to have their own constitution, their own land, their own covenant, listen to this, in the new covenant, you now get to experience that as well. You are a holy nation. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to celebrate communion here in about 20, 25 minutes. And when we do that, um, we remember when Jesus said, I am essentially cutting a new covenant for you. The old is gone. The new now has come in this regard. And as you look to me and, and you worship me, you need to know that I've taken out your heart of stone. I've put a heart of flesh there. I have taken out your disobedient spirit and I have put in you uh, the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of um, of Christ, 
and now you can worship me under this new covenant. You are a holy nation. You are set apart for worship unto me. And he says, uh, his own special people. This is actually a combination of Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19. But what he is getting at here is, God has set you aside to be his special people. And then not only does he, he transforms your identity, this is the very end right here, he transforms your activity. Look at the end of verse 9 and 10. He says, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is the deal. All right. He calls you to a life of praise. That's what he's doing right there at at the end of verse 9. He is calling you to a life that gives praise and honor and adoration and blessing and worship to him. And this is the call. You praise him because you now have spiritual light. You realize that before you actually came to Christ, you lived in darkness. You loved darkness. You enjoyed darkness. You, you, you were like a roach, all right, before you came to Christ, all right? And, and, and then uh, the light came in. All right, and then expose your sin and expose your way, expose your selfish will and your, and your sinful bent. And you say, wow, I don't like what I've been. I like the light. I like what I see in Jesus. I like his glory. I, I, I like what he can make me to be. And so I'm going to praise him now because he has shined the light um, of his glory unto me. But you praise him also because you have a spiritual family. It says once we... We're not a people, but now you're the people of God. Appreciate my parents uh, being here today. It reminds me that when I was a kid, we actually um, had a, a young woman came and lived with us for a little while, and she was a student of my mom at a community college. And the deal was this, is that she needed a place to stay. And she was looking for a place, and she didn't have a mom to go to. She didn't have a dad to go to. She didn't have a brother or a sister to go to. She didn't have even a friend to go to. And so she came to our house, and she stayed for a while. And I remember as a small kid, the first morning that she stayed with us, we actually uh, went to the breakfast table. And uh, she sat across from me at the breakfast table. And it's the first time I ever remember um, someone uh, other than our family unit actually eating a family meal with us. And uh, she had woken up in, in one of our beds. And uh, she had had a roof over her head, and she had a bed to sleep on and a pillow to put her head, and now she was eating at the table. And I thought, this is odd. This is, this is kind of odd, all right? But it was a blessing to her. She was thankful. I don't know how long she stayed. She stayed a while, and then she left. But I remember her being thankful to my parents, all right? But there was a real limit to that. There was a limit in scope. There was a, a limit in effect. I mean, she still had to deal with her problems. She had, still had to deal with the people in her life, and it wasn't an, an eternal fix. I don't know it, what ended up go, going on with her and, and in her life. But we made her as much a part of our family as we could for that period of time. Well, um, Jesus is so much different than that and so much better because we were not a people. We didn't have a place to go. We didn't have a family to participate in. We didn't have eternal life. We didn't have any of that. And what God says that in Christ, you now can become a people. You now have a place at the table forever. You now have a kingdom to dwell in forever. You now have blessing to be a part of forever. You now have all of these things that are glorious forever because of 
Jesus Christ. And so you praise him because you have a spiritual family. And then you praise him because you've obtained mercy. You praise him because you have obtained mercy. I don't think that we're going to have time to, to turn to Hosea, but I want you to just jot it down. Hosea chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. If you know the story of Hosea, you know that essentially Jesus, uh, God is painting a metaphor here and saying just as the people of God are unfaithful and adulterous in their relation, uh, or relationship to God, so was, uh, so was um, the husband-wife relationship there in Hosea. But what God says in Hosea chapter 2 is I'm going to draw you to myself. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to love you even though you were unlovable. I'm going to be faithful to you even though you are unfaithful. And I'm going to make you an object of my mercy such that, such that you will turn around and praise me. You will praise God. And that's exactly what the people of God do today. All right? We need mercy. We receive him. And so what do we do? We declare his praises just as he has told us in Hosea chapter 2. And so, Phil, if you guys would come up, what I want us to do now is I want us to reflect on the fact that Jesus is the living stone. He is the stumbling stone, but he's also the one who transforms our lives out of darkness into light that we may proclaim the praises of him who has called us. Let's do that now via song.